Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles and I'm the host of the Sendcast. We started the Sendcast a few years ago as a way to help improve knowledge around SEND. You can spend hours trawling through the internet or reading books, but we don't have the time. The Sendcast was created to help make schools more inclusive, to help teachers to support all pupils and to help support staff be more aware. It's really important to get the same consistent message to schools and parents, and the Sendcast is a great way to achieve this. In this episode, my guest is Wendy Lee. Wendy is a speech and language therapist with over 30 years experience in a wide range of settings. We will be discussing the impact of school disruptions due to COVID on children's speech, language, and communication skills. The Sendcast is created and produced by us here at B-Squared. Over the last 25 years, we have supported schools to support students with SEND. Over the last few years, we have diversified. For years, we have focused on assessment, and this will always be our main focus because it is really important. But we've also seen a lack of high-quality, easy-to-access training in CPD for schools around SEND. It's often just focusing on the Senko. Our online CPD offering, Training for Education, started a couple of years ago with a virtual SEND conference, but now includes a range of training courses as well as our conferences. You can find out more about our conferences and training courses by going to the Training for Education website, www.trainingforeducation.com. And at the end of the episode, I'll be sharing an exclusive SENDcast discount code, so keep listening. Let's get on with the podcast. In this week's show, we're exploring the impact of school disruption on children's speech, language, and communication skills. This week, our guest is Wendy Lee. Wendy Lee has been a speech and language therapist for over 30 years with a wealth of experience. Wendy was a professional director for the Communications Trust until 2015, being involved in a range of projects as well as inputting on national policy and research. Wendy is currently the director of Lingo, which provides consultancy, professional development, resources, and speech and language therapy. Welcome to the show, Wendy. Thank you for having me. Excellent. So you work as a speech and language therapy provider and have worked with schools during the past 18 months to support children's language. How has your work changed over the last 18 months? Okay, so during the first lockdown, basically schools, well, the majority of the schools that we worked with really weren't having any visitors. And obviously a lot of the children were at home. The vulnerable children were still in school. And so we really just had to find a way as speech language therapists to provide support both for the children who were at home, but also for the children who teachers were still working with in school. So basically what we did during that first lockdown is provide um some resources for schools to share with parents. So we we just delivered kind of activities to support language at home on a weekly basis. So we called it a communication workout and the schools basically had this little package of things that they sent home for children. So we had a little package each week for early years, one for Key Stage 1, one for Key Stage 2. And then we also had some children that we were working with directly through targeted interventions, which were 
a little bit challenging to deliver remotely for, for the teachers. Some some did it really nicely, but for some, the children weren't able to concentrate. We had lots of children with speech, language and communication needs in those more targeted groups. And so we kind of reconfigured those and again, just sent something home weekly that was just kind of shorter and more, and more easily accessible to the children. So it was a targeted intervention that we use called Language Legends, which really brings together some key skills from the kind of oracy evidence and some key skills around kind of vocabulary learning and uh, collaborative talk, reasoning, and also some of the key skills children need when they get into key stage two, like summarisation skills and prediction and inferencing, those kinds of skills. And it also works on developing understanding of language. And as I say, that from a remote point of view was quite difficult for the children. So we just kind of shifted it a little bit to make it a, a little bit more bite-sized so that the children could access it. So in that first lockdown, we just had to shift everything because not a lot of schools wanted us in. Yeah. Um, we also provided telehealth so we we had to shift all of our therapy that we would be doing either individually or with small groups over uh, teams or zoom you know to, to kind of work with children either individually or pairs we found that the telehealth in groups wasn't that effective and we'll work with children in groups a lot that works with adults ever get a group of adults in a team's meeting and get them to ask any questions everyone just sits there in silence because no one wants to be that person to ask the question yeah it's tricky isn't it i think i wouldn't want to be the person to ask the question so you, you can really see it from the children's perspective and obviously when you're working with children who've got language difficulties you're working through a medium that they find difficult so we're talking to those children and the, and talking is hard for them so you kind of have to make it really good fun in order for them to be able to access it and enjoy it and learn from it so it's trying to do that in in a remote way that just brings some of those additional challenges so there was a lot of extra work just pulling some of our therapy work onto various things that we did online to kind of engage the children so that was the first lockdown which is just kind of oh my goodness and the same for everybody you know we were all kind of under that Im immense kind of challenge to think okay we're not face to face with people anymore. How do we do the job that we do and we're, and we're used to doing and we're good at, you know, how do we shift that to a different kind of medium? And how do we shift it like that with no training, no guidance? It's literally, you got it. You basically had, and everyone just kind of went, how do we do this? And you started again and you looked what everyone else was doing. It's a, it was a challenge for everybody. Completely. And I, f I think what we found is that we had lots of conversations with our teachers because they were in exactly the same boat, but they had, you know, classes of 30 children to deal with. So we did have lots of conversations with teacher colleagues to kind of find out what was working for them and what was working for their students. And, you know, the, the more, the longer that I've done this job, the more that it, it kind of reinforces that notion that there is no one size fits all you know there is no one way to do things every school every classroom every community is completely different so what might work really well in you know year one in whichever school may not work in year one in another school or definitely won't work in year six and no. you know absolutely not in year seven so it's really thinking about how to adapt things in that way so so that was a kind of you know everyone was going through that same thing and we had some successes we had some things that didn't work so well so the things that weren't working immediately were kind of kicked out <laughs> or or shifted so that they work better but there was lots and lots of conversations with as i say colleagues conversations with parents to too. So we did have some parents. We work predominantly in schools, but obviously when, when children were at home, we wanted to make sure that if parents were supporting them, if that through 
the speech and language work that we were doing, that they were confident in in doing that. So we did have some conversations with parents. We had uh, kind of discussions and kind of almost almost like coaching type sessions with parents so that we weren't telling them what to do. We were listening as much as anything and then kind of saying, oh, well, if we if we tweak this that way, if we if we shift things that way or, you know, maybe this strategy would work. And then parents would come back to us and tell us whether that had worked or not. So it was much, I guess, much more collaborative, you know, particularly with parents who, we, we as I say, in schools, they're invited to everything that we do, but often they're working or they've got younger children and it's just more difficult for them to access what we're doing. So... So, yeah, so that was that was interesting. And I think, you know, you've always got that mindset of we're here to make a difference for these children. You know, how can we ensure that we're doing that for the for the, the majority? So the first, as I say, I think everyone was in the same boat in the first lockdown. We were kind of almost making things up as we go along, but really kind of ongoing evaluation of how well that's working. And then for us in September, when the schools went back, they all wanted us in. But again, teachers know this. You go back and and people are telling you in the media that it's kind of back to normal. And it was just far from that. You know, there was lots of children, uh, bubbles bursting in schools. There were teachers with who, who were sick with COVID and there were children that were sick. And again, you know, I would go to some schools and there would literally be nobody there. You know, there'd be one class still in and the others would be out. So again, it's just trying to make sure you can make the very best use of that time. What was really interesting is in lots of our schools, again, particularly in the second lockdown, they seemed to have many more children in than they did in the first lockdown. And it was predominantly children who were very vulnerable. So either children with SCN or children who, you know, were just kind of more vulnerable in terms of maybe there wasn't a lot going on at home in terms of teaching and learning. So in some of our schools, it was brilliant, actually, because the Senkos kind of said, right, we're just going to do your work every day. We're going to do speech and language therapy with the children daily. And so, again, we would put uh, work in place. We would model that for the staff. And then, you know, sometimes we do say, you know, can you do this on a daily basis or can you do this two or three times a week? And Sometimes that's just not possible, you know. Capacity is 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 a, a you know really difficult in schools, but actually in some of our schools during lockdown, our children with SEN did incredibly well because they were getting very high quality regular input from myself plus support staff plus teachers very consistently throughout that kind of lockdown period, which was amazing. And you know, you kind of don't get that opportunity that often where that kind of perfect scenario is there. It, didn't, it, it certainly didn't happen in all our schools. You know, there were capacity issues in many, but where it did happen, it was just that reminder that, you know, this really works. This really makes a difference. If we can get everything in lined up, it really does make a, a really positive difference. So, yeah, we had lots of speech therapy going on in in um in lots of our schools. And then in others where capacity was a huge issue, we just had to think a little bit more creatively about how we were going to input with the children when maybe they didn't have support staff in place because they were off sick or there was a staff member for this bubble, but actually that bubble didn't have anyone that day. You know, it was was kind of changing on a daily basis. And so we did a lot more work in the classrooms with the teachers. And again, those classrooms tended to be smaller numbers because they had children at home, the teachers would be supporting the children at home, and then they would also be supporting the children in the classroom. And, you know, we were very, very mindful of the pressure that class teachers were under. 
And that also, you know, Senkos were under. We had Senkos and head teachers going out to people's homes to kind of support the children. It was just, you know, really, really interesting in the way that it worked. But yeah, I think it was just about being creative, getting our work around language into the classroom, being able to work with those children who were very vulnerable in some schools in a much more intensive way. And then, as I say, where where children were at home, really thinking about how to facilitate the best support that we could in that situation. So lots of lessons learnt, really, but also lots of kind of interesting and innovative ways of doing things. We, um, we, we work as a company, B-Square, we do assessments. We're like a background system in most schools. Yes, assessment's important, but as a company, we're not involved in the teaching of daily practice. So we kind of, during the lockdown, we've kind of taken a step back and kind of left schools alone. We've been doing our stuff, but we're not, we kind of not, we haven't got those, we're here for you emails, even from the people who provide food or random things. It's like, well, everyone said it was marketing. It was like, no, they want to be kind of left alone. They've got enough to deal with. Let's not bombard them. We took a step back and we found that we were having lots of meetings, but generally with the senior leaders, but we also found lots of them would get cancelled at short notice because bubbles were bursting and they were having to go cover. And it really was, if if we had no expectations for meetings to happen, we would turn up. And sometimes you get someone else going, sorry, something's come up. So we were just, it was always, for us, we're just sitting here, we're in an office or at home, and it's quite a normal environment. But in schools, they were just, you had no idea what was going to happen that day when you went in. Yeah, completely. Completely. And I think I felt really, you know, quite fortunate that I was able to go into schools, as I say, from from September and then through the second lockdown, I was just kind of really busy working in schools. And <laughs> there were those times that I kind of thought, right, I just need to back off because they're really busy doing something else. But also some really lovely opportunities to work, as I say, in classrooms. I, I know one of our schools, they had uh, three year one classes and they'd purposely made uh, three much smaller classes because the children had, you know, quite significant needs from from the start of that cohort, really. And there was one day that I went in that all of the year one teachers were off with COVID. And so there was these children who had supply staff coming in and the, the Senko actually said, could you just go and work with the children uh, in each of the classes because they know you? <laughs> and it was just, it was lovely. So we did kind of language work with the whole uh, class and it was it, it was a class of 20, so it was fine. It worked really nicely. But it was nice to be able to play a kind of positive role in that because, you know, you could see how people were kind of up against it, really. So I do think there were lessons learned and I do think it was a reminder of just how powerful our work as teachers and therapists can be when we when we have that capacity to really support children. Having said all of that, you know, there are definitely children that we've seen have really struggled during this whole 18 months. And um, I was just going to share with you some of the the kind of less positive <laughs> outcomes of COVID for some of our children and some of the things that we're doing going forward. Yeah. So th there's been kind of various reports. I don't know if people are aware, but definitely in terms of impact in the early years, there's been some reports around the impact of children with SEND in particular. I have to say that what I've seen personally for children with special educational needs is some children have worked really nicely at home with parents. They've done really well. You know, they've kind of enjoyed that opportunity to be at home and parents have, you know, they know their children better than anyone, you know, particularly children with special needs that kind of need that very personalised approach to their learning. 
Um, so some of those children have done really well. So, But having said that, overall, I think the definite kind of feel is, is that children, young people with SEND have been sort of affected by the, the the pandemic in 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 a negative way in terms of their their learning and development so I've been back in schools this year and there's just certain things that I've noticed so I just kind of thought I'd share that because it'd be interesting to see whether other people have noticed the same yeah. things so I, we do a lot of work in the early years and the thing that I have noticed is obviously immediately that for many children, and and I guess the thing to say before I start all of this is that everybody is really different and all the children are very different. And this is not a kind of generalised uh, kind of everybody's uh, kind of affected in this way. But things that I've noticed as a speech and language therapist with more children than, I, than I've seen in, historically. So I've, I've never quite seen language levels as they are now. I've never experienced that before. And I've been doing this a really long time. So I can go in and it, it has, I, I do work in areas of social disadvantage more than other areas. And so I guess I've got a slightly skewed view on things. And I've obviously got a skewed view on things because I'm a speech therapist and I look through things <laughs> through a language lens. That's kind of what I pick up on. So I'm not saying this is everyone and it's important to kind of say that, but the things that I've noticed where children are struggling is that, yes, very low levels of language, but also really struggling with imaginative play. So, you know, those games that children play where let's pretend you're this and I'm that and this is the kind of den that we're playing in and the, oh, no, the dogs nick the sausages or whatever it might be. Um, And they develop a kind of storyline through that imaginative play and it's really collaborative. I'm seeing very little of that in the children who who tend to be struggling. So what I'm seeing a lot of is children playing alongside each other. So they might be in a kind of an imaginative play or a role play area of a setting, but they're very they're doing very individual things. So one might be in the corner of a, a, a home corner stirring something, and the other one might be you know chopping something. But there's no kind of story to it. There's no interaction. There's no collaboration. So and that's playing next to each other is, is that's like a part way through that journey. So you, what you're saying is you're seeing that where that kind of happens much earlier on, it normally they join up after that. But you're saying that 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 playing alongside each other is continuing much higher? Yeah, so that we would expect what's called parallel play. So they play in the same space, but it's not kind of as interactive. That's what I'm seeing a lot of in nurseries and in uh, reception classes. So across the early years, foundation stage in schools and nurseries and, and, and reception, as I say, where historically you would have seen much more interaction between the children. The game, it grows out of their talk. The game grows out of their imaginations and develops in lots of kind of interesting ways. I'm seeing much less of that. I'm seeing much more of that kind of, as you know, as you said, that parallel play and much less development of interesting storylines. Even when children are playing on their own, you know, you might see a child playing on a on a map with cars and, you, you know, sometimes they'll kind of talk to themselves about what's happening. Oh, and he's driving to the bus station. Oh, there's a man. You know, they'll, they'll do all of that kind of stuff. I'm seeing much less of that. And that's very worrying, not just for the the kind of joy of play, but also it's really important for language and it's really important for those interactions and that collaboration between children that really kind of makes something magical happen in terms of language and, and imagination. So, so yeah, that's one thing I've noticed. The, gov- and- the government warned about the sort of the delay for children very young age coming into early years and this boosting fund. And I remember, and I, I remember and where I live, there are a lot of um, families where the mum can stay at home and they stay at home. So I was thinking, 
again, from my, the area I live in, it's like, well, actually, my wife was at home. So my, there's a lot of communication happening and playing with things. But then that things were closed down, but you had the woods and she could explore. But there are lots of family where both families are work, both parents are working. So they're not having that lots of communication at home and where they would have gone to play groups and things like that and childminders where they would have been with other children. All of that's been taken away. So for the, a lot of them, it's a very... It was a very isolated time. Yeah, I think, I mean, I just think that the reasons are really complex. Like you say, you know, for those children that are in that really language-rich environment, what we're seeing for some of those children is just kind of less confidence to just have a go because they're used to interacting with parents and they're not used to having those kind of slightly more kind of difficult interactions sometimes with children where you've got to compromise and somebody's got to kind of, you know, you've got to take turns. Parents are really kind of supportive of their own children. They don't tend to kind of take things off them and then you've got to deal with that kind of scenario. You know, they're not used to having to deal with those conflicts in the same way. You know, they've maybe not been on day trips. Like you say, they've not been to play groups. They've, you know, some children during came into school and all they'd kind of experienced is a five-mile radius of their own homes. You know, we had children that never been to the seaside. They'd never been into the countryside. So I think regardless of the reasons why, there's lots of kind of reasons why. I think, you know, we're definitely seeing some of those impacts into, into nursery. Even those children that are pretty confident with their talk and with their play maybe are just a bit more reliant on adults. They're just a little bit less confident to just to be more independent, I guess, because they've had that time at home. Whenever a child's playing with an adult, is that? hierarchy there's always a hierarchy even if you don't try you get you try to get rid of it as a parent the child will always see that hierarchy whereas two children playing together they've got to work out okay how's this who's in charge how does it go and it's that realizing you're both at the same level and you'll get things wrong you'll get things right you'll work out what he likes what you like and work out how to play together by trial and error and getting through it. but if they haven't got lots of siblings. My friend's like he's got four children, so he basically had an inbuilt playgroup. <laughs> Great, but for most children, where there's one child or two children, it's not always getting that interactive play. So you're going to miss out on all of those skills. Yeah, I think it's tricky, isn't it? And you know, you have to get used to sharing. In a, if you think about a, a nursery or a reception, you know, some of the settings we go into, there's sixty children. You know, you have to get used to sharing space. You have to get used to kind of sharing your ideas, to compromise, to kind of talk things through with other people. If you want that toy or if there's no scissors, what do you do about it? You know, those kinds of things that... And children have always had to get used to that. But I think that the time during the lockdown period has just, I guess there's gaps in their preparation for that that you know we see in we see in settings the other thing that we're seeing is lots of children with american accents <laughs> <laughs> so a couple of people have mentioned this to me and i've heard a little bit as well i don't know if it's everywhere but it's interesting i've seen i've seen a couple of comments on uh, a senko group on facebook of this child she won't stop talking in american accent or he won't and it's from sitting in front of the TV, isn't it? I guess, yeah. I mean, talking about sidewalks and trash cans and, yeah, so, it's, again, that's quite interesting. I mean, yeah, I, I don't quite know what to make of it. I don't quite know what we should do about it, but it's just something I've noticed. I and... see, it, it will disappear over time because I remember my daughter loves the Barbie movies. That was a lovely period of time. Okay. And there's lots of that. And you'd see her playing afterwards and she'd be talking like they were in the film. And you're like, you're not American. But it is... When there's so much 
English, British talking and our accent and all going on, that's what they will pick up. But if over the last 18 months their parents have been working and although there's language going on, it's directed at a computer screen and some of the person on the internet, and they're just left watching TV to so the parent can get on with all the pressures that have come with the working from home, they are going to pick up that accent because that's the language they hear the most. And Yeah, completely. I mean, if I, I can remember uh, one of my kids loved TV and did watch a lot of telly, really. I mean, the language is fine, but she did definitely pick up Americanisms. It wasn't an accent so much. And every now and again, you'll still hear her refer to the pavement as a sidewalk or, you know, it's that kind of thing that's, yeah. So it's interesting. I guess the other thing that I've noticed is, or a couple of teachers have mentioned to me, is that we know that it was really challenging for parents who were, were potentially working at home and also uh, teaching their children, which is just kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. But what a couple of teachers have mentioned to me is that although parents were kind of looking to share books with their children, they tended to give children access to those online sites, you know, where people read a book at bedtime. So I don't know if you've seen them. There's kind of, there's lots out there. And they're great because actually reading stories to children is really important. They tend to be really kind of accessible. They're really pleasant. And, you know, that's great because actually children, there's some research about the types of language that children hear when they hear books being read to them is a different type of language that you hear in general conversation. And so they learn um, particular grammatical structures or they hear particular grammatical structures and they hear particular vocabulary that you might not hear in general conversation. So things like exclaimed, you know, he exclaimed. You wouldn't, I wouldn't say, oh, Dale exclaimed that, you know, (laughs) he was tired today or whatever it was, where you'll hear that language in a book. And so that's that's something that they really get out of being read to. But there is a lot of research around just how important interactive reading is, so shared reading. So not necessarily reading a book to a child, but making the child an active part of that of that reading, of that sharing of the book. So you might start with the book by just kind of saying, oh, I can see, you know, I can see an elephant. What can you see? And you, you kind of engaging the children or what do you think might be happening there or what do you think might be happening next or making comments as well as questions and that interactive shared reading is really kind of powerful for for developing language it's really powerful for developing things like prediction skills inferencing skills even in very young children kind of understanding of language and so on and so children some of the children that definitely I've seen in settings and again teachers have kind of mentioned this to me, are not used to that interactive book reading. So not only have they kind of missed that opportunity because they've been looking at things online, but also they just don't know how to do it. And so there's that kind of teaching of children of actually sometimes when we share a book, it's not me telling you a story. It's us between us kind of working out what's going on and actually seeing things that you might not see in just the text. So that's, that's been interesting as well. As I say, those sites are really can be really good because the children hear the story, but they do miss out on that interactive side. I remember reading to my daughter and you'd read something and like, she goes, what's exclaimed mean? And you go, you know, and she looks at you blankly. So I'd go, <laughs> think of something that just happened that I can say, and you retell what you happened earlier that day where she was exclaimed at this and tell it. So then she's then linking what that means in the real world to that. So then, because to me, And it's interesting, when I read a book, whatever book I'm reading, I'm seeing a movie in my head. I'm seeing it going through. My daughter doesn't get any of that. 
So I literally will read that and it's like I'm filling in bits of that picture. So you might be halfway through the book, you're not quite sure the character, oh, it goes quite, and it just helps you fill in the picture and I see it in my head and my mum will never watch Lord of the Rings because she's visualised how they are to her in her head. Okay. And she'll go watch the film and go, no, that's not right. No, okay. that's not okay, my. Yeah. So for me, it's it's that thing of, for me, it's filling information. My daughter, it was, I don't know what that word means. So we'd put it into context of her and she was able to question. And I think that's a really important thing of if something's going on and you don't understand, being able to go, I'm not sure. What exactly, do you mean? Exactly, yeah. And I know lots of adults who don't do that. Yeah, so yeah. You, and by having someone just read to them and you really only getting half of that information and then nothing, you're like, oh, so I'm not supposed to get everything that's being told to me. They're not then going to put their hand up and go, I'm not sure what you mean. You yeah. want to generate, if you're not sure, ask. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting, Dale, because children with language difficulties generally, particularly if they've got difficulties understanding language, first of all, sometimes they don't recognise what they don't know, which sounds kind of like an odd thing, but they don't have that kind of inbuilt ability to monitor their own understanding and sometimes we have to teach them that separately and secondly they tend to be less active in terms of asking questions so I'm sure your children my children just questions constantly you'd be sitting watching a film with them like why is he doing that and what's going to happen you know it's like yeah okay you know we'll find out watch the film (laughs) watch the film Um, but actually that questioning is really important for learning and children with language difficulties tend not to ask as many questions as children with typically developing language. And so, again, you get that double whammy of not only have I got language difficulties, but I don't have those inbuilt mechanisms to those strategies to kind of develop my language further, like asking questions, like recognising when I don't understand something. So you're right, with interactive reading, again, what the research tells us is it's brilliant for children with typically developing language. For children with poor language, you do have to put some of those extra elements in there. So you have to do things like making sure you pause And just leaving them the space to process that information. The second thing is sometimes extra props and things can really help to kind of make it more visual and more tangible. And then the thing that you were talking about then, which is the research call it elaborative reminiscing, which is basically (laughs) making it meaningful, talking about things that link. So, yeah, do you not know what exclaimed means? Well, this is how I'm going to help you to understand. I'm going to literally put it into your world, in your context, explain it, relive it, and then probably, you know, so your child has got it, and that's really important for children with language difficulties as well, making it meaningful to them in their contexts. So I had, I, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but I, um, I worked with a secondary school who had a word of the day, and their word of the day, this particular day that I went in, was accelerate. Great. And their definition for accelerate was increased velocity. So you can imagine if you don't understand what the word accelerate is, you're not going to understand that dictionary definition of increased velocity. It just doesn't make any sense to children. And, And yet, if they looked it up in the dictionary, that's what they would find. And so it is about making those definitions accessible. So it just means go faster. And then you make it meaningful. So actually, you know that hill outside your school, if you were on your bike and you started off at the top, 
what would happen as you went down, you'd go faster, wouldn't you? You'd accelerate. And then you're just using that word in lots of different contexts. So you might, with your daughter, have said something the next day and say, oh, see that? I just exclaimed something. You know, you'd reinforce yeah. it so that um, she gets the meaning of it. And, you know, interactive book reading just kind of lends itself to a really good language workout. You know, it just gives you lots of opportunities to pick out new words, look at understanding, think about prediction, think about inferencing, think about developing understanding. You know, it's the whole gamut of things that really kind of lends itself to, to that. So as a speech and language therapist, inferencing and this and this. Yep. And all over the country, we've got all those parents at home who are going... Inference. What? <laughs> yeah, what? Oh, so, that, so though, and they can sit there and go, "What does this mean?" And they might, but a lot of the parents they won't have those skills. So, it's well, it's just in lots of ways, it's just been a hard, hard year. Or yeah, two. it has, and I think I think you know if you are if you're sharing a book with your child at home or you know with a small group of children in school, you know I think one of the keys is don't worry about finishing it. You don't have to get to the end of the story. I get a lot of parents saying, oh, he just won't sit for long enough or he just won't listen. It's fine. Just look at one picture and just kind of don't worry too much about it. You know, if you're just talking around the pictures, if you're just making some comments and asking some simple questions, you'll be doing the right things, you know? A, a storybook is someone's story. And there is a book out there called You Choose which I personally hate because it took up so much of my childhood, <laughs> my childhood, my child, my children's child, because they knew that if we got that book out, that bedtime story was an hour long mm. because it was where do you want to live? Where do you want to go on holiday? What would be in your house? And you just have a, a picture and it's lots of visual prompting. So you'd see a picture of all different things, places you could live, the moon, the desert, the mountains, the city. And you just be off talking about, and she, I want to live where, why? Well, do you remember when we went to get on here on holiday and we did that? Yeah, I loved it. So, and the thing is, you basically, you, you're creating a story with your child from looking at these things, you're retelling the stories. And that's just as beneficial. Oh, completely. Yeah, completely. And as I say, there are real benefits to telling a story. And there are real benefits from sharing a story and allowing that story to develop in whatever way that you, you choose. And I will just say inferencing skills. I know it sounds kind of really techy, but it's basically that ability to read between the lines. Yeah. So if I said to you, oh, I'm going to take my umbrella with me today, you would understand what? You'd understand, I guess, that I think it's going to rain. I haven't said it's going to rain. I, I, you know, what you've taken from that is you've listened to what I've said about an umbrella. You know that we live in the UK and it rains a lot. You've pulled those two ideas together and you've made that inference. You've yeah. made that that leap of understanding. And that's all that inferencing is, really. It's just you don't hear things in the language. You kind of take that little leap to kind of infer what you think the person means. So it's interesting. When I, when I talk to you, I have so many things I could segue into, into so many things, and I've avoided three so far because <laughs> we'd get lost. But one of them is I'm just going to discuss that inferring and inferences. So I was with my friend and his children at the weekend, and we were watching good old, the original Star Wars with his children. And we were really noticing how slow the film was oh, really? when they go into the cantina 
there's like just a, a shot of the whole canteen with all the different beings moving around and there's just lots of shots of different things. And you basically, it's probably about a minute of nothing really happening. It was just setting the scene and you were kind of getting, okay, so there's lots of different in aliens and they're all doing, some of them wearing like, look like flight suits are really inferring their spaceship people and you're getting lots of information from this. And then they got to the bar and there was, and things went on, but there was lots of use sort of building that picture and them setting the scene of, okay, so it's a dangerous place. It's, this is going on and people don't like each other. And then you actually got into the conversation. But if you watch a modern film, it'll be like, let's go to the bar. They're in the bar. Okay. Let's start talking. It's like none of that. You're also generally in the modern films, you're generally zoomed in on their faces. You don't get much of the background. It's like the background doesn't really matter. And I think you go back to the old films, there's a lot of information you can get from the background about where they are, what's going to happen, and who's watching them, who's ignoring them, how big a thing is this? So there's a lot of inferring which used to go on, which has kind of been removed in the modern TV. Mm, I've not noticed that, but, yeah, I'll look out for it, definitely. And, uh, you know, when you've got to make those judgments and inferences when you're watching something it does it makes you think doesn't it it's kind of what is going on and how, how do I know that that's what's going on and and as I say it's the same when sharing books with children of all ages you know it's not just young children it is older children where you know it's like well how do you know how do you know he's really annoyed with her or how do you know you know she doesn't like him or how, you know how, how do you know that how do you know that they're in a really kind of risky situation or that they're really enjoying themselves where's the evidence and actually it's just as i say it's just very very powerful in terms of language you know building that language so i guess you know those are some of the things that i've kind of noticed and as I say, the, the other kind of picture of here is that there, there has been some research done by the Royal College of Speech and Language Therapists. Um, they had a conference this week where they were talking about how COVID has impacted on children's access to speech and language therapists. And the numbers are really quite shocking in terms of um, the percentage of children that haven't had speech and language therapy and that picture of uh, children kind of maintaining their levels or sometimes going backwards rather than going forwards. So just think, you know, where we are now is is a is a kind of perfect storm in that, you know, speech and language therapy services have been stretched for a long time and then we've had this kind of situation with COVID that we do need to think quite creatively about how we're going to manage the numbers of children that we're seeing. Like I said earlier to you, Dale, you know, we've recruited a number of extra speech and language therapists because the demand is so high. And we are not just working one-to-one -one with individual children because there is just such a high need. So we are having to think about how to make the very best use of our time and the time of the, you know, the staff in school. So it's not completely overwhelming for them, but actually still trying to meet the needs of the children that are out there who've got, you know, significant speech, language and communication needs. It's important to remember, so speech, language, communication needs is going to have a real impact on their learning and future outcomes. But it's also, um, there's a very, very, very high correlation between speech language communication needs or lack of communication language and mental health. 
Completely. So as I say, we're working with a lot of schools this year and part of what we do at the beginning of the year is kind of a bit of an audit, a bit of a kind of conversation about, you know, what's the nature of the need of the, the, the students? You know, what have you got in place already? Where are the gaps? How can we support? And the big message coming through from a, a lot of our schools, both in primary and secondary, is mental health. So um, students with kind of significant mental health issues. And what we're finding is, is that one of the things that we suggest that we do is kind of look at what might be sitting underneath that. And yes, a lot of it is around anxiety, it's around COVID. But actually, like you say, there's such a huge correlation between speech, language and communication needs and social, emotional and mental health needs that to identify some of the underpinnings for the social, emotional, mental health needs is really, really key. So we've done a number of kind of um, pieces of work in the schools where we're in on a regular basis or even schools that just want us to come in and do, a, you know, a kind of shorter piece of work where we have gone in and assessed those children. And pretty much without exception, we've found around two thirds of the children identified as SEMH have got significant speech, language and communication needs. And that that does link in with some of the research that's out there. You know, the, the Burko review found 80% of children, 81% of children with these kinds of difficulties had unidentified speech, language and communication needs. So it's it's a huge issue and important really to kind of identify whether or not it's language that's sitting underneath it. And also if it is, and those children are having talking therapies, they need to make sure that the children can access the talk that's going on in those talking therapies because otherwise, you know, a lot of it might just kind of go over their heads if they haven't got the language that they need, if they haven't got the concepts that they need, if they haven't got the expressive language that they need to, in order to really make the best of those talking therapies. So it really is, you know, part of a whole really. It's kind of, it's not always that helpful to kind of silo children in that way because actually those kind of difficulties really do interact. And it seems like with the um, if, if if you're feeling anxious as an adult, you say, "Oh, you're feeling you got anxiety. What's that?" And you tell them, "You're like, oh, actually, I've got enough information to draw on to understand and put it into context and look back at things." I've got ah, oh. but when you're a child, oh, I think he's got anxiety. It's like, how does a child know what anxiety looks like? And generally, that comes from uh, reading stories where you actually look at things from other points of view and see that actually he was in this really worked up and he had to do all this stuff and how he felt and it's it's giving them the skills and be able to recognize and express how they feel mm -hmm. for them to actually recognize how they feel and understand and then there's so many levels around that which is so linked to the that emotional side being able to communicate and understand that for all these children struggling with these things all these children who aren't playing with other children they're alongside they're not communicating anything that is going to have a huge impact on that mental health long term. Yeah, definitely. And sometimes, you know, I, I work with children who seem to go from kind of fine to kind of off the scale, kind of angry or frustrated. And it, it it's almost in, you know, seconds they go from one to the other. And actually when you unpick it, sometimes they just don't have the language to ex to kind of describe what's going on for them. They don't have the emotional language, so they can't they don't have the word frustrated they don't know what it means you know they don't have the word annoyed they don't know what it means they don't have the word kind of angry but they have the kind of behavior or the, the what comes out is you know I'm kind of furious now you know and so it 
you just kind of get to see what it looks like rather than them being able to kind of self-regulate because quite often they don't have that language. There's a really good book just that's just come out, um, which name escapes me on the top of my head, but it's by Melanie Cross and Stephen Parsons has been involved. It's around emotions and behaviour and it really does kind of look at the language aspect of that, it's a really kind of good resource if people are, are kind of interested. I can add it to the to the list. Yes, please do. There's a, we did a podcast, James Galpin and someone else, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but that was about certainty and uncertainty. Right. And it was the idea of when things are going great, you know what's happening. But when something goes wrong and you hit this emotion, you hit this uncertain world, and generally you know if you do something wrong, you know the punishment. So if you're not sure how you're feeling, but you look at something and go, well, if I hit that, I'm going to get told off. And as soon as you do that, you kind of, the child knows what's going to happen. Okay. So by being naughty, it gets them straight back into the certainty world. They don't, at the moment, I go, I don't know how I feel. Do something, I'll get told off. Oh, okay, I know what's going to happen. I'll get sent to her teacher and it keeps them. And it was just hearing him explaining that in a much better way than I just did. <laughs> I did the really muggle version of no idea what I was talking about. But him explaining it, it was like, Wow, and is no, we don't like uncertainty. We no one likes uncertainty. Mm. You like to know what's going to happen, and sometimes the way to get back to is actually doing something destructive. Because if you've done it before and you got punished, you know what's going to happen. It, it brings you back. So that was really, really fascinating. The um, other thing about that that just uh, sparked something off for me is that if you're somebody that has a poor understanding of language and you're in a situation where language is all around you, then you live in a constant state of uncertainty because you're not, you don't know what's happening. You don't understand what's happening. So in the morning, I have a particular routine. I get up, have a shower, and I work my way through my day in terms of what I'm going to do. And so I've, I've, I've mapped out my day, and it's a little kind of, okay, I know what I'm doing now. For children with language difficulties... You know, they don't have that ability to map out their day in language terms. And when they come to school, what they get used to is the routine, which is great. And it's why lots of children with language difficulties kind of get really thrown when the routine is thrown because, oh my goodness, that's what I was expecting and now it's not here anymore. And they don't, again, have that understanding to kind of, they haven't heard that it's a school trip today or they haven't heard that actually, you know, the fire engine's coming and it's in the playground today or whatever it might be. And so they're just completely thrown by it because they've not got that kind of language buffer to enable them to kind of work their way around that uncertainty so that it's certain. So, yeah, you can imagine just how difficult it is for some of these children. And you can imagine that you're literally going, oh, he's going to, love fire engines fire yes. engine comes to the world. why yeah. is he going off on one why yeah. is he because he wasn't expecting it you've changed his routine he's no idea actually how to process this he's uncertain and by throwing it you go so whereas actually if he was prepared yeah you would have got the result you were expecting so it, it was just it was a fascinating podcast so I'm going to ask you a question now okay. probably a couple of questions so you talked about how over the last 18 months there's been a lot of collaboration with teachers and looking at new things. So, first question is, before that, were you following, and the answer is probably no, but I'm going to phrase it this way anyway, were you following the, well, this is the way we've always done it, model? No, I tend not to work that way. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I found a lot of schools have to go, this is the way we've always done it, always done it, always done it. COVID has arrived. We've now got to change. And so... I expect because you're generally, if, you, if you're running your own business, you're not going to do what you are going to be always trying to improve. So where we are now, 
COVID, hopefully no more lockdown. We're still in the situation where lots of schools have lots of, let's say in the perfect world, we're back to normal, no more COVID. Has the way you deliver speech language and the way you do things changed forever? I think it's probably less about how we would do things. So what happened during lockdown was a bit of a combination of some things were just kind of great and they worked really well, but it was just the nature of what was going on in the schools. You know, as a visitor to schools, as a speech and language therapist, you have to fit in with whatever's happening in those schools. You can't come with your kind of ready-made, this is what this child needs, get on with it, because it it just tends not to happen. You have to kind of think about, well, what, where is the school and where are they up to? What are they able to do what's realistic for them and you know I I kind of go into schools thinking right well this is what I think you need okay but what out of that is is doable because it's better to do less really well than to try and take on everything and so I don't think it's necessarily about whether we've changed what we do forever I think we've got more more ideas other things that we've got to go on particularly around our sort of resources for parents and that that kind of as I say we had this communication workout that we did with parents that, that schools are now using with small groups of children in class which is great but I do think schools are under enormous pressure at the moment yeah. and even though I can see what I'd really love to to happen in schools I I just don't think the capacity is there in many schools to make it happen so it is about doing the most and the best that we can with the situation that we've got. Yeah, I mean, there are a few things that I could kind of rant about, but I won't. <laughs> but one of the big pressures at the minute is around phonics. And, um, I was just about to ask you about phonics. So... Because uh, for the government to react, so everyone can say, we need this, and the government will generally ignore them until one of their measures goes wrong. So do you think if the phonics check is done this year, there will be a drop? So I, I don't know. But what I'm hearing from schools last year and this year is that lots of the children fell behind with their phonics, obviously, because they, they weren't having as much phonics teaching as they had. What's happening this year is... I think partly because of that, there is a big emphasis on catching the children up with their phonics. And so there is a, a, a big emphasis on, you know, sitting the children having lots of phonics. We've had schools that have had um, visits from Ofsted and the kind of message is, you know, carry on doing more phonics because the children aren't learning their phonics. And, OK, I'm just going to have to breathe a little bit, but... You know, there, I, I don't think there is anything that, a, that is a panacea. So... Phonics is really important. I just need to stake that that it is really important. It's important for children to be able to decode and, you know, does make a difference to children's reading from that point of view. You know, I wouldn't want schools to stop doing phonics. You know, it's, it's really just that it's not about that. But it is about the fact that some children um, have got gaps underneath those phonics, so phonological awareness gaps, that mean that... They can't access the phonics that's going on. So, for example, last year we worked with a group of children in year three and year four. They'd had phonics, you know, systematic teaching of phonics from reception age. And they were now in year three, four, and they were still doing the same work and still not making any progress. And in my mind, if that's the case, then they need something different. 
you know, just doing more of the same, you're just going to get the same outcomes. And so we did some work on their phonological awareness and lo and behold, not all of them needed that. Some of them, it wasn't an issue for them, which is fine. They needed something different. But for the ones that it was, actually that real solid systematic teaching of some of those underpinning skills like rhyme and alliteration, like being able to kind of manipulate sounds, made enough of a difference for them when they went back onto their phonic scheme, they could access it, it. They started to make progress. And that's my frustration is that, you know, once again, coming back to the beginning, one size does not fit all. There is definitely other work that I think would benefit children who are struggling with their phonics other than more phonics. And I am extremely frustrated about it at the minute. problem is I always sit there going, phonics and what's being left behind, that once we fix phonics, we're then going to have to catch up on something else. Well, the challenge is if, you know, if children have to do an hour's phonics a day, that's a fifth of the day. You know, that's a lot of time given over to something that is basically about decoding letters on a page. It doesn't mean that children can read. It means that they can decode. In order to read, you have to understand what you've read as well. Otherwise, what's the point? You know, obviously phonics is the kind of gateway to reading. It means that when you see letters on a page, you, you know that they are words and you can read those words out. But if you haven't understood when you read, you know, the cat sat on the mat, what that means, what a cat is, what a mat is, what, what the cat's doing... You know, and, and that's my worry is that the language element is being missed and the language is just so fundamental to children's learning more widely. And like we've said already in, in terms of their mental health. So I know there's a big push on phonics and I know that, you know, that's something that the teachers that I'm working with, the support staff that I'm working with are, are under a huge amount of pressure to, to make sure, sure children do pass their phonics check this year. And if they do, great. But I think there will be holes underneath that. Um, right. And that's definitely what I pick up when children get into key stage two. They may pass their phonics check, but can they, is their learning deep enough for them to be able to spell, to be able to spell those longer words? Because if you've got no syllable knowledge, how do you break down a, a longer word to be able to decode it or to spell it? You know, and I think that's the worry is that the phonics check is all well and good, but it and, it, and it's for the majority of children, phonics is brilliant. It works, you know. My kids, no problem. They would pick phonics up easily. But for those children that it doesn't work for, my feeling is, is that we really should be looking at other things that can support those children more effectively alongside those phonics. Skills. So as a parent, you hear about phonics, but you don't hear about phonological awareness or really the importance of nursery rhymes and songs and things like that. And so bar, bar, black, actually, all those songs, actual nursery rhymes, actually they're teaching you the rhythm of a word. So when you look at a word, you're literally going, okay, what's the rhythm? And things like that is really, I didn't know, I had no idea until I was doing podcasts with you and Angharad Welsh and other speech language therapists, I actually learned so much more about actually phonics isn't step one. Sonics is like, that's right, it's like step five, step six. There's so much before that, that if you don't have that embedded in, you're going to not, you're going to struggle with the phonics. And if lots of children have missed music with mummy, all those play groups, all those opportunities to sing those rhymes, to sing bar, bar, black sheep, followed by bar, bar, stripe, um, stripy sheep and purple sheep and green sheep, and just repeating that song and helping them with the rhythms, sleeping lions, all those things, that will then help them when it comes to the phonics, looking at that and knowing, oh, I recognise that word, that, that word's got that rhythm. It's, it gives them the rhythm to read that phonics. So if you don't have the rhythm, you're going to struggle. 
That's all that's been missed out. And I don't know how much in schools we're then looking at nursery rhymes. It's making sure that sort of we're not just trying to get to phonics. We've doing the bits before that as well. Yeah, completely. And I guess what I've seen over the past few years, even before COVID, is, you know, you I would go into an early year setting and you would hear those rhythms and rhymes and songs very, very regularly. You would hear lots of stories being shared. And I think because of the pressure of other things, those are the things that kind of have less emphasis on them. I see less of that in my in my trips into schools. And that's a, a real worry. You know, children are coming into schools not knowing nursery rhymes, not knowing traditional tales. And like you say, that rhythm, that kind of playing around, you know, hat, cat, fat, mat, you know, let's make up some stuff. And, you know, those kinds of things are so fundamental for, for the foundations for phonics. And when they're missed, it means that, as I say, those children that would pick it up anyway are fine, but the children that will struggle are trying to build on a very, very sandy foundation. And so they do lots of kind of either not remembering or not picking it up or learning and losing because they've not got a strong foundation to build on. So we will see the outcome over the next couple of years at many levels. We will. I mean, as I say, there's such a lot of pressure on schools at the minute to get the children caught up with phonics. It may, you know, the outcomes may not look any different, but my worry is, is that you see the impact in other areas, you see, you know, there's that ripple effect, isn't it? Like you say, what's being missed if that's the emphasis? Yeah, definitely. So thank you for coming on the show today, Wendy. So Wendy's mentioned a few things. She's given me a list of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. So there's a load of links and she's going to add the um, book she mentioned as well. And you'll find all of those links in the show notes. So thank you for listening to this Sendcast. If you haven't subscribed already, please subscribe. You can find links to subscribe across different podcast platforms on our website, www.thesendcast.com. And please follow us on social media. On Twitter, we are at The Sendcast. On Facebook, we are The Sendcast. And on Instagram, The Sendcast. And if you listen to us through iTunes or Apple's podcast, please leave us a review and let others know what you think. And before we go, I would just like to remind you to check out the Training for Education website. You will find a number of guests on the Sendcast, our speakers at our virtual Send conferences, or have recorded their own training courses. Training for Education is a great way to get CPD for all staff around SEND that is effective and affordable. Visit www.trainingforeducation.com for more information. And as an exclusive gift to Sendcast listeners, you can get 10% discount on the virtual Send conferences, future or past, by using the code SENDCAST10. So thank you for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Sendcast. It's goodbye from me. And uh, goodbye from me. <laughs>